It's nearly summertime now, which means it's time to spend afternoons hanging out on the patio, grilling up some meat. And to make that way easier, there's ButcherBox. I love grilling and I love ButcherBox. With ButcherBox, you can easily find high quality meat and seafood that you can trust. 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood is all available and can be delivered right to your door. It's an amazing value and you get exclusive member deals and recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks, which is certainly something I need. So if you haven't already, sign up for ButcherBox today by going to butcherbox.com proof and use code proof at checkout and enjoy your choice of bone and chicken thighs, top sirloins, or salmon in every box for an entire year. Plus, get $20 off. That's butcherbox.com proof and use code proof. Again, that's butcherbox.com proof and use code proof. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh, stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. Hi, and welcome to this week's Sidebar. We're here to discuss episode two, The Boyfriend, Obviously. I'm here with Jacinda and Kevin to answer your questions and discuss what happened behind the scenes in episode two. Hey, Susan. Hey, Susan. So to kick things off this week, we had a listener question um, I wanted to talk about. The question's from Bubbly UT Girl on Instagram, and she wrote, I notice what my kids wear when they walk out the door, and many times I cannot remember by the end of the day what they wore to school. How does Jake remember the jeans and T-shirt that Renee was wearing? I think that's a valid question. Like, I couldn't tell you what my kids were wearing yesterday or their day before, but I think it's different with Jake because he and Renee were living on the streets and they didn't have that many clothes to change into. Um, yeah. It, it makes sense in a lot of cases to wonder why they remember, but with Jake, like it's probably a choice of two options here. Like Renee has the clothes she's wearing and maybe one other outfit in her backpack, but not much else. Yeah. They can't, they can't have a lot of clothes. I think that would be my interpretation. The other thing is, you know, it hadn't been so long. I mean, he could have, when he had to sort of describe what she was wearing. So he could have really, he could have taken note of it, sort of not even realized, but then been able to think clearly on what she was wearing because it wouldn't have been that long since he had seen her when he had to describe what she was wearing. When an important event occurs, like someone disappearing, I think you can remember those things. Right. So like that evening when he couldn't find her, he could have at that moment kind of made a mental note of it without even realizing it. 
Like, was yeah. it the red shirt or was it the black shirt? Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing, we've talked to some of Renee's friends who describe her clothing style, like very simple. She didn't have a lot. She liked what she had and she wore it all the time, right? She always had her backpack. She always had a sweatshirt. This is a red t-shirt that Jake had given her. She probably wore it all the time. So... Which also kind of cuts both ways, because it also means that the fact she was found wearing it might not even mean that much, because she wore it, like, maybe even half the days that week uh, before she went missing. So it doesn't really necessarily tell us that she was in the same outfit that Jake last saw her in. I mean, for all we know, she could have just changed into it at a later time. Like, if she was alive between that Monday whenever she was taken to the Home Depot... She could have been wearing the same shirt that entire time or changed out and back into it if she only carried one or two changes of clothes with her. And this kind of goes back to a a huge issue in this case. And that's what wasn't found, namely Renee's backpack that she carried everywhere with her and also her shoes, because when she was down at the Home Depot, her body was barefoot. So the backpack never located, shoes never located. We don't know exactly what was in the backpack, but it would have been like a change of clothes, some medication she had for more recent doctor visit she'd gone to, but it's just gone. And that's always struck me as a strange part of the crime scene because it seems like it implies something about what happened or that it has some meaning. Yeah, I agree. The missing backpack is strange because she always had it with her. She didn't leave it as far as we know at labor ready. So she had it when she left, you know, it makes you wonder who has it. There's a lot of things she could have done with it. She could have stashed it under her Yeah. Does it mean did someone take them from the Home Depot after killing her? Or did she not have them with her when she was at the Home Depot? Right. Or was she transported to the Home Depot from somewhere else? Was she dead? Yeah. When her body arrived at the Home Depot, meaning the the backpack and shoes could have been somewhere else. And this is another thing that's never even mentioned ever in the case file by anyone. Like it, Apparently, just no one seemed to have noticed it. But there's also another big thing missing, which is her skateboard. Renee had her own skateboard. She'd be skateboarding around town and her skateboard's never found. So to me, it feels like the third item that was missing and never located, but no one seems to really have realized it at the time. Yeah, it's true. They always had their skateboard with them, especially because they didn't have a car anymore. So the skateboard was always with her and Jake always had one. So what happened to that? It wasn't left at Fuji's house as far as we know, and it wasn't left at Labor Ready. Because it wasn't just the skateboard at that point without the car. It was an actual mode of transportation. Yeah. The Home Depot was on like the far east side of town. It was near Highway 99. And at the time, it was kind of isolated. Like it was not the main drag where they hung out. They did go there towards that area sometimes, but not usually. And it was a bit of a hike. So yeah, where's the skateboard? It's also worth talking a bit about the Home Depot and what the crime scene was like and kind of how hectic of a crime scene it was. There's kind of a a sad, funny note in the case file about how after her body is found, the Home Depot foreman was trying to insist that his men would continue to work on the building while the murder investigation was ongoing. And apparently it took some convincing from the detectives before he backed down and I think in their words, recognized that he would not be continuing construction for the moment. So the foreman wanted to keep building while they were looking for evidence? Yeah, the foreman's like arguing with them, like, oh, we'll keep on constructing over here and you guys do your murder investigation right there. And they had to, like, just tell him, like, flat out, no, shut it down. It is stopping right now. And, of course, you know, his job is to make sure things don't stop. So this is a nightmare for him. That's quite a deadline. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's so, you know, the scene, it had lots of people there. There's like 50, 60 workers. They did photograph every single worker's shoes, which is interesting because 
That implies they had shoe prints to compare against, but they never actually document that. I mean, we do know there were some kind of shoe prints found around her body in the dust, but that's not documented. That you're aware of, right? That that we're aware of. And we also know at the crime scene, there was a few things found that I've always been curious about. Um, like there were two sweatshirts found there, one just a few feet from her body and one kind of the other side of the building. Maybe nothing could just be worker sweatshirts that were put down and forgotten, but they never confirmed that, I don't think. And there's also a pair of white socks in the building about 70 feet from her. You can tell from the dust they've been sort of kicked aside across the ground a couple feet. And just in a, we've talked about this before. I mean, I think in the day you can't include anything, but yeah, they look like women's socks to me. Like they just do. They look like little women's white ankle socks. And who knows? Because they didn't try and figure out that they were hers. I mean, it's possible Renee didn't wear shoes that day, I guess. But it's not just that she's not wearing shoes. There's no socks either. So are there her socks? Right. Did she take her socks off there or were her socks taken off there? The other thing, just to circle back to the footprints, like if she's barefoot, did they see any barefoot prints? They did not. That is not mentioned. They did look for that. So that either was not preserved or they're not there. Look, you don't have her backpack, her skateboard, her shoes. There don't seem to be any barefoot prints in the scene. And I think if I remember right, there was some kind of like sawdust or drywall dust. Yeah. Drywall dust. So it seems possible that her body was placed there. It's possible, certainly. I would certainly want to look at those socks and see if one of their hers and two of the bottoms of them were dusty ish, you know, like yeah. does it appear like whoever's wearing these socks walked on that dusty floor. Yeah. And there's another thing at the crime scene that might mean nothing, but just worth mentioning. The day after this, next day work resumes and one of the Home Depot workers calls in and says like, hey, I found this blanket here at the site and it's got blood on it, it looks like. And the cops go out and from the report, they say, ah, looks like chocolate. <laughs> the end. That's just really frustrating. Like, <laughs> How do they know it's chocolate? Did, did they, ta- did they just, taste it? <laughs> it, do- it doesn't take a whole lot just to check to see if it's like positive for blood. I don't know. Those guys might be able to have a better sense than us, but um, I'm willing to believe it's probably nothing, but like there's a reason you document this stuff and not just say it's chocolate. It's, um, the reason is so crazy. People like us don't come yes. back 20 years later. We are the reason you document stuff like that. <laughs> and there's also one final thing at the crime scene that I wanted to talk about because Jacinda and I, we've gotten nowhere on this. On Renee's body, there is a scrap of paper on her crotch. It's just a little piece of paper, has a couple letters on it, green and white. It, to me, it looks like a wrapper of some sort. And we have theorized what it could be. And end of the day, we're coming up empty. So I'm going to post that image on my Twitter, just in case someone out there can look at it and be like, I know what that is. I know what brand that is. I know what item that was packaging for. The presumption is that it's a wrapper from some product you're saying. Yeah, it, it's, it kind of looks like that to me. That's my best guess. But I couldn't match with anything at the crime scene or at the Home Depot. And it's the way it's placed just seems like the kind of thing you'd go, huh, that seems like it could be relevant. Right. Like how did it, how did it get there? Yeah. How did it get there and what is it? Yeah. Why is a tiny scrap of paper with some kind of lettering on it there? What's your Twitter, Susan? It's the view from LL2. Yeah. So if anybody looks at it and has some ideas, let us know. We also heard the episode about how Jake was brought in for interrogation. 
as soon as the police found him, essentially, after her body was found. And we talked about it in the episode and played the audio from that video, but obviously you couldn't see what's happening. But in that video, you actually see Jake react to Detective Morgan telling him, we found a body and it's Renee's. And this is presumably the first time that Jake's ever hearing that Renee is dead. And that feels significant, right? Like here is a murder suspect learning the victim is dead. Like how is he reacting? Like is it proof of innocence or proof of guilt? And we talked about that video with Renee's friends, Amber and Lori, and I thought they had an interesting take on, on what they saw. Is this what you remember seeing? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I wish it wasn't so dark. What'd y'all think of that one? I feel like there wasn't much of a reaction. Initially, there wasn't. It was like yeah. he, it was almost like he... Already knew. So when I first watched it, I felt like, oh, he already knows. Like, mm-hmm. he's not even crying, you know? And then... It took like the second time. After like a couple days after watching it, and, like, just thinking about it, mm-hmm. I was like, but we kind of already knew. Like, because she was missing for a whole week, and I think deep down in our hearts, we already knew. I mean, basically, this video, it's not, it's kind of grainy, it's kind of dark, especially at the moment where this is happening. It's even darker than it is the rest of the time. And it definitely allows you to read whatever you want to read into it in some ways. Agree. Like, if you look at it and he does react, and like you said, you can read into it. It's a fake reaction. It's a real reaction. But I think what Lori says, and Amber too, is that rumors had already started spreading that they found a body. And they all kind of knew already without being told. Like they knew. It wasn't a complete shock to Jake at this point. It was a shock that it was being confirmed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And he, you can hear him crying, but... I mean, I can be faked, obviously, but his reaction is fairly muted. Like, he jerks up and just kind of goes silent for a while, other than some sniffling. It's hard to um, to say that somebody, you know, has to have an absolute type of reaction when they learn someone has died, too. I mean, it is such a difficult moment. It's hard to pass judgment on how someone can react, particularly if he already assumed it. I remember having a conversation with Jake talking about the first time he heard for sure that Renee had been killed. And he said that he had been hearing rumors, but it was the cops who who told him for sure that her body had been found. Yeah, he definitely knew a body had been found, but he did not know whose it was. And also most people in town didn't yet. Like Tuesday at school, people still hadn't heard it was her body. I think there's another moment in the interrogation that is in the episode and we don't really comment on it, but to me, it kind of stood out more than his reaction. And it's when they're trying to get Jake to confess. And I believe it's Sousa who gives this analogy of, well, who do you think could commit murder? Jake, do you think a 12 year old boy could grab a gun and shoot someone? And Jake's reaction is like, oh my God, did someone shoot her? Very quickly. Like, like he thinks that's how she died is that she was shot. And of course, Sousa thinks this is him trying to like play dumb and try and pretend he doesn't know what really happened to her. But in the moment, it makes it sound like he doesn't know what happened to her. Yeah. It's how you read it. Is that a genuine reaction or is he that manipulative? Well, that's the interesting thing about interrogations, right? And you see it here and in the 
in the TV show that was used, everybody interprets someone's reaction to something differently. Oh, it reveals this or it reveals that. And a lot of times it comes down to opinion and interpretation. The TV show was from Real Interrogations, which you'll hear about more in the season because it played kind of an important role in how this case came about. But I got to say, I really kind of enjoyed the fact that on Real Interrogations, they got the actual detectives to do the reenactments for them. Like a most, obviously, you all know, most true crime, the actual detectives in the case aren't the ones there being filmed for reenactments. But in the show, you had Detective Wells, Morgan, Sousa, all together out there pretending to be looking at the case again on camera. Not only do they use the detectives for the recreations, there's this one scene when they're in like the office and they're looking at evidence and they have this poster up on the wall and Susan's like studying it, like looking at it. Enhance, enhance. Enhance, make it bigger. I'm like, what are you doing? It's just a Enhance. Of course it's a prop. And like we look and it's not a prop, you know, it's their actual notes and their actual board on where they are tracking things. So we are able to get some information from that, that the police department hasn't released to us yet. Of course, it's an extreme close-up. I wish it was bigger because it shows that they were charting stuff out that they must have been doing, but there's no proof in the files. It let someone come in and film their actual office with their notes on the wall. Wow. Yep. It was this case and it was long enough that they had to unpack this stuff and put it up and recreate it on the walls. So they took out real documents, real files and put them on the wall for the camera crew. And because we've been denied the FOIA request, we're looking through this video and pulling it from, (laughs) they have tape to the walls. Susan, how much do you think you're paying in subscriptions every month? If I guessed, I would probably get it wrong because I've learned one thing from Rocket Money. It's that there's a lot of shit I'm paying for that I've forgotten about. I had no idea I was subscribing to the Denver Post. What cases do we have in Denver? I honestly don't even remember. (laughs) But thanks to Rocket Money, I'm no longer wasting money on that subscription. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with a few taps. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash proof. That's rocketmoney.com slash proof. Rocketmoney.com slash proof. Hey, Susan, I heard you're not feeling well, and I was thinking, how lucky is it that we just both signed up for HelloFresh? Thank God, because I can barely hold it together right now. Without HelloFresh, I don't know what we'd be doing. Because apparently, even when you're sick, the kids still got to eat. That's right. There's no stopping meal prep. But HelloFresh makes it easy. You can skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. And even better, HelloFresh's line of kid-friendly recipes are picky eater proof and perfect for families with toddlers who are extremely mercurial in what they'll actually eat. HelloFresh keeps you going even when you're down. It's not just great when you have toddlers, it's great when you have teenagers too, because my kids can open a box and cook dinner for us. 
HelloFresh at least makes mealtime easy when everything else is going wrong. So go to HelloFresh.com slash proof apps for free appetizers for life. That's one appetizer item per box while your subscription is active. That's free appetizers for life at HelloFresh.com slash proof apps. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Well, in the real interrogations episode, they make a big point. And actually, this is not something that's used at trial. So it doesn't even matter for the trial purposes. It's not something that comes up there, really. Uh, but on the TV show, they talk about how there's a moment when Jake's being interrogated for the very first time, first of four interrogations. And at some point, Morgan and Susan step out and leave him alone in the room about 15 minutes. They leave the camera rolling, of course, and Jake doesn't know this. And he, in this time, he's... I mean, he seems pretty emotional. He's like rocking back and forth. He's crying. He's fidgeting. He's fanning himself. And at one point he says the words, I forget what the exact words are, but something like, did you kill her? No. Yeah. He says, did you kill Renee? No. And on the show, this is used to show an example of how Jake was able to pass the polygraph because he had practice beforehand. And this one exchange with himself was enough to let him beat the polygraph later on that evening, I guess. Yeah, and I think that's an important point. I don't know if he made it clear on the episode that there were several hours between when he was interrogated and then when they went back to get him for the polygraph. Yeah, but also during that 10-minute break or 15-minute break, that's not the only thing that Jake says. He's talking to himself several points, and he says things like, I mean, it's hard to hear because he's talking to himself, but he's like muttering, I'm going to fucking kill whoever the motherfucker is that killed her. Whoever did this, I'm going to find them and kill them. Stuff like that, like just angry and kind of ranting. So to me, that whole thing has not much significance. Obviously, you can draw your own conclusions. I don't think there's any significance to it. I think he's scared. He's worried he's going to fail because he's so scared and nervous about it. I don't think it, it's an indication that he's practicing because he's the killer. Yeah, even if he's practicing, it doesn't mean that he's guilty. It means he's terrified. And it's become clear to him that these police officers think he's the killer. I mean, they tell him actually outright. It's not yeah. really a secret at that point. Yeah. And he's got to be absolutely terrified. Yeah. His heart's probably racing. He's probably just, I mean, you can see he's freaking out. He's rocking back and forth. He's trying to calm down. He's Uh, just found out his girlfriend's dead, allegedly. Yeah. But again, it's one of those things you can interpret it however you want, right? And in that interrogation, though, I kind of enjoy the exchanges between Detective Morgan and um, Jake because you can just hear how different the two worlds they come from are. And the two of them have like almost nothing in common. And Jake's trying to explain things that to him make perfect sense, but to, you know, an adult professional in the real world sound a little bit bonkers. Like this point when Jake is asked to explain like where he was on every night of that week. You know, we were talking about that earlier, and you're telling me that you don't recall where you were from time to time. Are you going to provide an alibi for a period of time when you're not really certain where you were? You know, have you ever been on the streets? Have I ever lived on the streets? No. I've been unemployed three days in my life since I was 15 years old. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's hard, you know, just living on the streets. You don't know where you're going to be or where you're going. You know, it's just kind of hard for me to say and in this clip just uh jake saying like look have you ever been on the streets do you know what it's like like you don't know where you are every day and 
Morgan's like, I've been unemployed only four days my entire life. <laughs> I wouldn't know. Yeah, he says, have I ever lived on the streets? No, I've been unemployed three days of my life since I was 15 years old. So yeah, there's no understanding about why they're living on the streets or what it's like or how you could lose track of time living on the streets like that. And they were spending most of their nights skating. So it's not like there's a day-night divide for them either, which definitely complicated tracking certain days. Because when you start getting into like where they were, where they're moving, who they're talking to, everything just bleeds together into this just wake up, skate, nap, find food, wake up, skate, nap. Like it's just a cycle that doesn't follow like the day-night cycle. And yeah, I get why Jake couldn't really say day by day where he was. You know, uh, Jake was talking to me once and um, I forget what we were talking about, but he mentioned Morgan and he told me, he's like, yeah, I, I like Detective Morgan. And I was really surprised by that because I think I told him, like, he was on your ass all the time and literally accusing you of killing Renee. Why did you like him? And he was like, yeah, but he was an all right kind of guy, <laughs> which I was surprised by, but it kind of made sense because in comparison, the other detectives and their interviewing styles, like Morgan is questioning Jake pretty hard, but he's actually questioning him conversationally. Whereas Jake, I think, was kind of scared of Susan Wells just because of the way they approached him and the way they tried to question him. So to him, Morgan seemed like an okay guy. Yeah, in one of our conversations with Morgan, he actually said that he thought under different circumstances, Jake would be a likable guy. Like, I think Morgan treated Jake with respect during the interrogation. And that's not to say that Susan Wells didn't, but I think his questioning of Jake didn't seem like I'm questioning you to prove you're the killer, but I'm questioning you to try to get answers to help me find the killer. And it wasn't just the interrogations either. Like that's the, the written record we have. But we know that while in the three month period between Renee's death and his arrest, the detectives were talking to him all the time. They'd find him on the streets. He was not hard to find. He's out there skating all the time. And they'd have constant conversations with him. So he had regular ongoing interactions with the detectives this whole time. So we also talked the episode about the relationship between Jake and Renee and how troubled it was and chaotic it was. And I think pretty much everyone would agree. I know Jake even agrees at this point, or has said that they should not have been together. It was a mess. It was like toxic on both sides, abusive by Jake. And it definitely gives a sense that towards the end, things were getting worse. Like things might have been about these spiraling. I mean, it's hard to know for sure, right? They argued a lot. They would slap each other. No one actually saw the abuse. We know Jake hit her at least once because that's how she had the black eye. Clearly, it was not a healthy relationship and it was toxic. They were both going through things. Could they have worked it out? I have no idea, but probably not without some guidance and some help from somebody. But it seems like there were good times too. Talking to Jake, like he does have strong memories of what the good times were. And I don't doubt they were in love. That's kind of the problem, honestly. But I thought I'd share some clips of Jake talking about Renee in his own words. She looked like uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar from Lucky the Vampire Slayer. Just her nose was a little different. The same exact style, same exact little ponytail. I can't watch that show. It kills me. What do you love about her? She's just perfect. She had the tiniest little feet. She had three. Yes. I don't want. I don't want to get into it. Uh, yeah, she was perfect. And that laugh, that laugh she had. 
I used to have her laughing all the time. Act like a straight idiot. I used to act like a straight idiot to make her laugh. We've spent a lot of time trying to piece together Renee's life, and it's difficult because the police didn't really speak to her friends and didn't speak to her family that much either. They spoke to Amber, one of her closest friends. They did talk to Amber because of the incident at the Taco Bell, but they didn't actually interview her other friends. So they didn't find out and preserve whatever they might have known. And Jacinda, we also discovered while talking to Renee's friends that it kind of seems like Renee was doing, you know, something that I think is pretty typical where she wasn't telling all of her friends all of the things. She was telling different friends different parts of the same story, but not giving any one of them the full picture. So I don't know how much they individually even knew at that time. Yeah, I I don't think Renee was telling all her friends everything that was going on with her. And like you said, she was telling some friends one thing, and you know, a piece of her life and another friend something else. I think by this time, though, her friends had made it clear they they weren't fans of Jake. And so she probably started to retreat from them and didn't feel like she could share because she was in love with Jake, you know? So how could she share things with Jake that would just reinforce how they felt about him? We also know from people who were around Renee when she was living on the streets that she apparently kept a diary, which uh, I wish we had. I feel like that would be, I mean, it would be the best source to know what her life was like in those last weeks, but presumably the diary was in the backpack and it's it's missing too it's worth noting though that like although jake was clearly not a good influence on renee i also don't think it's fair to categorize jake as like the source of all of renee's problems there's definitely evidence that a lot of what renee was going through had nothing to do with jake and here's one of the exchanges between jake and morgan from his first interrogation that talks about that um did renee ever tell you that she was Arrested? Yeah. Um, she was driving her, her friends around. And her friend James went and stole a carton of cigarettes, a pack of cigarettes or something. And, yeah. That was me that arrested her. <gasps> so I had a little speech with Renee regarding hanging out with guys to get her in trouble. And I'm not saying I'm her best friend. I hardly knew her, but it kind of puts a little bee in my bonnet. She had to see somebody dead she actually met, knew, dealt with, talked with. This was in 1999, so after Renee and Jake had started dating, but it didn't involve Jake. Renee was with one of her guy friends, a guy named James, when they robbed some cigarette cartons and Renee got caught. And the guy who arrested Renee for this was actually Detective Morgan. And at the time, he had sat down with Renee and talked to her and told her that she needed to get away from guys like this because they were going to get her in trouble and she should stop hanging out with guys that would do that. This wasn't Jake again. Like, Jake, nothing to do with this. Just a totally different friend that she's hanging out with. But Morgan remembers this. And when he gets to the Home Depot and sees her body there, you know, it's definitely a hard moment for him. Because he's like, I warned this girl. I told her to stay away from guys like that. And now this has happened. What are your impressions from talking to Amber and Lori and Jake and Donna about the other people that Renee was keeping company with out on the streets? We only know the ones that either Jake knew or that friends like Amber knew as well. And it's, I remember starting this case thinking we had a pretty good grasp of who all Renee was hanging out with. And it's mostly just Jake or her friends, but I definitely started to learn as we went along that the circle of people that Renee was interacting with was, it was pretty broad. Her world had gotten smaller. She was hanging out with Jake a lot, 
but it wasn't quite the case that Jake was her entire world. I think one of the things that became clear to me from being in California and from talking to both of you about this case is that as the season goes on, I think it will become clear that everybody doesn't know everything about what Renee was up to. Yeah. And how she was spending her time. And that sort of blind spot is rather large at moments. Yeah. It definitely feels like Renee herself was almost forgotten in the investigation because Jake was their person of interest. Jake was their obvious suspect. So it kind of didn't matter to them so much what Renee was doing, what Renee had been like, because what mattered what was her boyfriend was like, what he was doing. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that they focus on Jake and there's a reason that you titled the episode, The Boyfriend, obviously. It certainly makes sense at that point. Yeah, like it's this is not a hard question for an investigator. Who are you going to start with? Jake. Right. But I think in doing that, they forgot to look at some of the other aspects that in a case that was more of a whodunit would have gotten more of a priority. Right. They had looked at Renee's circle outside of Jake. Maybe it would have led them in a different direction. Or just found out more about her life in general. And I think the interesting thing is that, you know, everybody isn't completely clear on exactly what her circle was at that point. Exactly. Next week, we are back with episode three, where we meet the eyewitness, the person the police found who solved this case for them and who gave them the evidence that led to the conviction of both Jake Silva and Ty Lopes. I will say for people getting ready to listen to that episode next week, that this eyewitness, I think, becomes one of the most extraordinary witnesses I've ever seen in any crime story. For those of you who followed Anand's case and you thought that Jay Wilds was uh, an issue, well, you ain't seen nothing yet. You've been listening to Proof Sidebar, a podcast by Red Marble Media in association with Glassbox Media. Send us your questions and comments at proofcrimepod at gmail.com. Follow us everywhere with the handle at proofcrimepod and on our website, proofcrimepod.com. Regular episodes drop on Mondays and you can find sidebars on Thursdays. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>